Uh, one of my many character flaws uh, is that I am a sort of infuriating person to watch a movie with. Um, and when that movie is based off of a book that I know and love, I grow downright intolerable. Um, I tell you this because Missy and I watched Wonder Woman, the movie, a while back. Have you seen it? It didn't go well right off the bat. Um, and here's why. The movie starts with the Greek creation myth. Here's how they tell it. Zeus is the lord of the gods, looking down from a peaceful, serene Mount Olympus. Zeus then creates humankind, the movie says. He makes them in his image in order to worship him and the gods. And he looks at them and loves them. He calls them good. Sound familiar? Yes, but not because it's Greek creation myth. Greek creation myth starts with Kronos, the first great god who eats his children because of his jealousy. <laughs> Zeus escapes because his mother Rhea feeds Kronos a rock in a blanket instead, and Zeus eventually makes his father regurgitate his siblings before waging a massive war and banishing his father to Tartarus. Uh, Prometheus, actually, I, I guess would be Zeus's uncle, creates humankind. And since all of the good gifts of creation had been given to other animals, and since humans were basically worthless and hopeless and exposed little worms crawling around, Prometheus steals from the gods to give humans fire so that they might just have a chance to survive. This angers Zeus so much that he chains Prometheus to a rock to have his liver pecked out by a hawk every single day, forever and ever, amen. Now, I am all about artistic liberty and reinterpretation of myth. It's my job. But I don't really see how you can interpret this as loving and seeing humankind and calling them good. Horrible to watch a movie with. Horrible to watch a movie with. The Greek version of our creation uh, isn't the only one absent of love and goodness. Uh, the Babylonian myth, which uh, I really enjoy, particularly because it would have been the ones that Hebrews heard alongside of their own uh, back when Genesis would have been written, uh, starts with a similar war among the gods, this time with the reason that the young gods were just too noisy um, and the older gods decided to wipe them out. And Marduk is the champion of the younger gods. He kills his angry mother with an arrow through the head. He splits her apart and uses half her corpse to create the earth and the other half the sky. Uh, so I hope you're comparing with our Genesis story as I'm going along here. Um, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers come from both of her eyes. Then Marduk slays his stepfather. And when he does that, his blood spills to the earth and that creates humankind. Maybe you've already deduced that to the Babylonians, we were not named good. <laughs> and then we have the Hebrew story. The wind of God hovers over the formless deep. It's a female spirit in the Hebrew, a matronly image, heavy with life. The word of the unnameable God comes and says, let there be light. 
No wars, no split corpses. God doesn't even yell it. When humankind is finally made in God's image, they're not made with any purpose, like to worship God or the gods, but simply out of God's pleasure of creating. There's no blood spilling or intrigue, just two folks placed in a garden so that they can work in it, so that they can order it and produce food. No scattering in fear, no shivering in the cold. They're even vegetarian. And so little is told of God's character in this. We are never given God's feelings, only God's words and the pronouncement of God's pleasure at what God sees. The other myths with their broken families and corruption and destruction sound more relatable, honestly. Like the gods there are just bigger, exaggerated versions of our own foibles and faults and flaws. It's interesting how little description we are given of God. And it's not an accident. For the Hebrew people, the greatest danger was making an image of God. Later on in Deuteronomy, Moses uh, says, Look, Israelites, since you know that the Lord has spoken to you and has taken no form, watch yourselves closely so that you do not act corruptly by making an idol for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, or any animal, or winged bird that flies in the air, or creeps on the earth, or any fish that is in the water, do not make an image of God. Oh, and he says, and not only that, but no image in the shape of the sun, or of the moon, or of the stars, or of any heavenly beings. No, none of them. Have we covered it all? No means no, no images. The worst thing you can do they're saying, is to define God. All images fall short and break down. Check. But my favorite part is that then Moses doesn't even miss a beat and says, because God is a devouring fire. Ding. Image. Fire. Burning, purifying, impossible to touch without harm, impossible to live without a good image, but it's an image. Because we need images. We are people of touch and color and sound and sensory experience. The real question is, how do we begin to make images without them then making our myths only about ourselves? making God a larger version of Amber, a larger version of Amber's mother or father. Today is Trinity Sunday, uh, which is why we had the quick switcheroo uh, of color, because uh, it is our last little day of white, um, the day where we define God as something beyond our understanding, the three in one, who are all God distinctly, and yet who are one. We try to throw a lot of words and images around this to say what we mean. I'm sure uh, you've heard plenty. Uh, The joke is is that there's no way to illustrate the, the Trinity without committing some form of heresy. 
So we start with unknowability, a very good place to start. But myths, whether they're Greek or Babylonian or Hebrew, they do all tell us something about what we expect our lives to be like, what we think the value or purpose of a human life is. So, what does the Trinity show? I believe it illustrates that at the very heart of God's being, the heart of all life, is relationship, mutual joy, interdependency. We, are, we kind of always say, you know, God is love, but a singular being does not love. Love does not exist outside of relationship. The Trinity, whatever it looks like, answers human fears of being in relationship. First, it answers this fear of loneliness that we carry, the isolation, the solitary being. There is no existence outside of love and relationship within the person of God. But conversely, in the Trinity, we also insist that each person is separate and unique, and that we in our relationships are not assimilated into yet another faceless and voiceless automaton in the crowd. We are not consumed. We are valued, whole, apart from the other. The Trinity means that our deepest fears of isolation and assimilation are answered in the very heart of God's being. It would be a lot simpler if we had a nice little image for God that was just Father. But it would also be a lot less like God. You know in the Reformation how people would go around and deface the icons and depictions of God that had built up in popular Christianity? They called them iconoclasts. There's a sense that this has to happen. Our images of God are broken by scripture, by others, by experience in your life, by loss and pain. If you found your images wanting, it could be God breaking them. God is the greatest iconoclast, too vast for even the beginnings of our definitions, yes. But near to you, asking you to try. <laughs>